0: Turn, if you would, to the 28th chapter of the book of Matthew. We are going to finish Matthew today. I know you all don't believe that. I know you're sitting there thinking he's scheming and conniving how to keep doing this. And while working on this this week, I did come up with three really good lessons out of this passage. But we're only going to do one and a half of them. Yes, I was finishing up this last night while waiting for my wife to get home at one o'clock from the prom. The uh, homeschool prom was last night. 1,945 kids. My, My wife was on the sewing team. Now you go, what does a sewing team do at a prom? Well, first off, they make sure that all the young ladies are dressed appropriately for the dress code. And if they're not, they fix it. (laughs) And then about 11 o'clock, some young man walked in who had ripped the seat out of his pants. He not only tore the seam, he actually tore the fabric. So my wife whipped out the sewing machine and put it all back together in some form or fashion. We are finishing up the book of Matthew. If you're still here in eight years you'll hear it again. For those of you who don't remember when we started this, Matthew is my favorite book of the Bible. That may have dawned on you by now. In particular, the Sermon on the Mount is my favorite passage. And I have limited myself to only teaching the book of Matthew once every decade. So, two years ago, I turned 60. And as soon as we finished whatever it was we were working on, we started the book of Matthew. So next month, I turn 62, so eight years from now, well, you can do the math. We'll do it again, maybe. Last week, we had Jesus resurrected. We had the Easter story, the pivotal event in Christian anything. The fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. We had a discussion about why Jesus had to be resurrected. The week before, we had talked about why he had to be crucified, why he had to die to pay the penalty for our sins. Last week, it was, why did he have to be resurrected to prove that he won? To prove to us that he had conquered death and that we, too, could share in that resurrection. So Jesus has told the disciples, come see me in Galilee when all this is over. And if you take all of the different Gospels, the four Gospels, you can line them up, and a lot of stuff takes place in this period of time. And Matthew only deals with one little piece of it. And so that's all we're going to talk about today. Picking up in verse 18. 16. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, it is interesting that they use the word doubted here, because we don't like the idea of the disciples doubting. In fact, some commentaries will say, well, this isn't just the disciples. If you remember several verses earlier, Jesus had told the ladies, tell the brothers to come to Galilee to see me. So there were probably the eleven and a crowd of other people. And some commentaries went to say, well, that was the other people, some of them doubting. Others will have us believe, well, you know, we know that Thomas had some question. How can it be that he was dead and now that he is alive? But as soon as they saw Him, those doubts went away. So He has brought them up to Galilee to talk to them. And Jesus came and said to them, "'All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age.'" This is what is often referred to as the Great Commission. The last words of Jesus in the book of Matthew, and he tells the disciples, and I believe tells all of us what it is we're supposed to be doing while we're still here. It's an interesting question if you really ask it. Why is it that we, when we become believers, don't just automatically go to heaven? I mean, let's face it, you're in, why struggle? Why have the conflicts of life? Just go at that point, it'd be a cool thing. Except for the fact that God has chosen to use us, and this is amazing, us as sinful human beings to spread the gospel to the world. That's what he has told us to do. He begins by talking about authority, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The first question is, who gave it to him? And that would be God the Father. There's a second question. What authority has been given to Jesus? This is one of those trick questions. Because it says it right there. All authority. What does that mean? Jesus as the creator of the universe, has authority over the created order. But as the resurrected Lord, he has the authority over the salvation of us. He has the right to tell us what to do. We hate the idea of authority today. We really do. We don't want anybody telling us how to live our lives we don't want anyone telling us what we ought or ought not do we just don't like authority well if you're a believer so called and you have trouble with the authority of Jesus Christ as I've said before that should be a red flag that something may not be what you think it is Jesus, having proven that he is God, having paid the penalty for our sins, having created the world originally, has authority over all things. That would be heaven and earth. And that authority has been given to him. Why is that important? Because he... The person with all the authority is telling you to go do something. So first off, you probably ought to do it. Secondly, you can acknowledge the fact that when you go do it, you're doing it with the authority of the guy that's got all the authority. You know, if I today went to North Korea and tried to negotiate a peace settlement, everyone in the world would laugh at me. Why? Because I have no authority to do that negotiation. Nobody's given it to me. I'm just an average Joe, and I would probably be arrested when I came home. There are actually some laws about that kind of thing. But if I were the Secretary of State... I have been given authority by the government to go talk to people and actually negotiate things. The authority is not inherent in him. It has been given to him. And that's what Jesus has given to us. What does that mean? Well, it means that at the end of the day, we're going to win. Now, on any given day, it may not look like that. You know that. I know that. We've all lived long enough to know that there are lots of days that it looks like nobody's in control. Things are just randomly happening. God is taking the big pile of dice and he's just kind of throwing them and he's messing up your life. That's how we feel sometimes. But Jesus is saying that's not the way it really is. I've used the illustration in here before. I was reading a book about D-Day, and all these paratroopers jumped into occupied France in the middle of the night. They were scattered everywhere. And if you were one of those paratroopers, you would think this situation is really messed up. I don't know where I am, I don't know where my buddies are, Everything is chaotic, and it's just messed up. But in reality, they were doing exactly what they were supposed to do, which was causing confusion among the enemy and holding key locations. They were doing what they were supposed to do if you looked at the big picture. But at the individual level, it was madness. And sometimes that's the way it is with us. When we are faithful to do what we are supposed to do, it may appear at the moment that chaos is ruling. But we acknowledge the fact that Jesus has all the authority and he has told us to do certain things. What has he told us to do? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you there's really one command and three explanations of that command the command is to go and make disciples go and make disciples it is one command tied together so go Where do we go? Do we load up our car and drive to some distant country? Maybe, if that's what God has called you to do. Do we go next door and talk to our neighbor? Maybe, if that's what God has told you to do. There would be a great tendency for us to take this church, this local body of believers build a huge wall around it to keep the other people out, and live our Christian life as if we were insulated from the world. But that's not what God calls us to do. God calls us to go somewhere. Now, does that mean we're all called to foreign missions? No. No. There are lots of places to go. Like to the next-door neighbor, to the people you run into every day in different places. We are to go and to make disciples. What does it mean to make a disciple? Well, obviously, it begins with sharing the gospel. We share the gospel. We tell people of their need, their sin, the. Uh, What God has done through Jesus Christ to take care of that sin, that's what we tell them. But that's just the beginning. We then help them as they mature in their faith. There is a chart that I found somewhere, I think it's a navigator's chart, but I wouldn't swear to it, that has a number line from minus 10 to 10. And the middle of it is conversion. You become a believer. At some point, you are justified. You are declared right before God. But in our walk in life, we can move on this scale. You start at minus 10 with the devout atheist, and you have a plus 10, which is the mature believer. All of us are somewhere on this scale, and we are called to move people in the right direction we are called to make disciples disciples are those who follow the master we talk about the 12 disciples at this point the 11 of them what did they do jesus went somewhere and they went with him it was pretty simple they listened to his teaching and they put it into practice what are we supposed to do we are to be disciples, and we are to make disciples. But I don't know how to do that. We'll find out how to do that. But I don't have a large class to teach. Who cares? You see, we have this focus that Billy Graham, when he was alive, was the guy sharing the gospel, and I can never be Billy Graham, therefore I'm off the hook, or I can't do anything. No, God has put you somewhere to talk to somebody, to share the gospel, and to make them into disciples. Now, we acknowledge the fact that it's really the Holy Spirit doing it. But God has told you, no, God allows you to participate in that process. So what does it mean to make disciples? baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We'll take the end of that first. In whose name do we baptize people? And here we have the Trinity just laid out for us. I've had people in here say that I need to teach a whole series on the Trinity. And I said, well, we could do that, but your head would explode. (laughs) The Trinity is a... Difficult, a difficult Christian theological belief that the Scripture, while not using the word Trinity, clearly teaches. What does the Trinity tell us? It tells us that God is one God in three persons. There is God the Father, God the Son and God, the Holy Spirit. There are not three gods. We are not polytheists, as maybe, say, the Muslims would argue that we are. We believe in one God who is three persons. Now, the problem with this is that we don't have any non-God example of how this works. So we keep coming up with metaphors and pictures that usually get us in trouble when we do it. Okay? There are those who believe that at one point in time, God was the Father. That would be the Old Testament. And then God became the Son. That would be the Gospels. Then God became the Holy Spirit. That would be from Pentecost on to today. God is one at a time and he takes his pick. Well, there's a problem with that because we know that God the Son was talking to God the Father while God the Holy Spirit was demonstrating that they were all on board with this. So our pictures tend to confuse us more than help us. Why is this important? It shows us that there is a plurality in God himself, and it's okay. That's okay. What do we see in Genesis chapter 1? Let us, us, God talking to God, let us make man in our, plural, image. That's how we've been created. So. We are to baptize people in the name of all the three persons of the Godhead. Now, why does it say baptize? Now, if you're a good hmm, Church of Christ member, you'll have us believe that the baptism itself is what saves people. But we're not good Church of Christ people. Bless their hearts. We believe that when people confess their sins, repent, and ask God's forgiveness, that God saves them, and that the baptism is the sign, the symbol of what's happened in the heart. So if I'm going to go out there and baptize people, it means that I have shared the gospel with them, that I have told them what it means to be a believer, that they have accepted that, and that... They have publicly acknowledged that through the act of baptism. So the baptism is the end, not the beginning of the process. So we are to go out and bring people to this process where they publicly acknowledge their belief in the salvation that Jesus Christ offers. And that's what we're supposed to do. That's where all discipleship starts. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't end there. I grew up in a good Baptist church, and we used to joke that our pastor, great guy, basically had one sermon, and that was, you need to be saved. Great sermon. I don't care what the passage was. That's where you were going to end up. And you know what? That's true. But there's more to it. There's more to taking somebody and walking them further down the line. And what does that involve? Baptizing them in the name of the, Holy, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. What do we do when we get them saved? Do we just say, okay, that's a check mark. off you go, let's go look for the next one. That's what oftentimes people do people who have the gift of evangelism can get into the problem of just saying, okay, I got another one. Let's go find another one. And that's good, by the way. That's where they are gifted. But we are to take these people who are believers, who are baptized, and we are to teach them. What are we supposed to teach them? Come on, this is real, real easy. Come on. Huh? To follow... Oh, what did you say? No, we're not going to say that. What did he say? We're supposed to teach them to follow the law. That's a great segue to something else. To be like Jesus? Yes. To follow... The commands of Jesus. His comment is, is that not the law? Boy, this is going to be fun. I would say that this is the fourth lesson that I was going to teach, except I've got all this figured out. Hmm? Everything that's on the Sermon on the Mount, that's certainly a start. (laughs) Mike's comment is that can confuse us. If there is a controversy that has plagued my teaching career, it's not predestination. I think some of y'all think that is, but nah. It is the relationship of the Christian and the law. And there is a book of the Bible that deals with that, and that is the book of Galatians. And guess what we're going to start next week? (laughs) You knew there was a connection here, didn't you? Jesus says in John, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. But wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Isn't it all about grace? I don't have to do anything because it's all about grace. And the answer is yes. Salvation is a work of God from first to last. But... Having been saved, not through our own effort, but through the finished work of Jesus Christ, what are you going to do? What are you going to do the next day? Are you going to continue to live the life that you lived before your conversion, or are you going to allow the Holy Spirit to work in you to guide you on how you ought to live your life. How do we know what that is? Right here it says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The observation is, is that the same thing as the law? And the answer is, it's close. And we will have a long discussion about that in our study of the book of Galatians. At a minimum... At a minimum, you can go through the Gospels and find every passage that Jesus says you ought to do this. And you ought to do that. If you look at that and say, "Yeah, I don't think I want to do that, that's another one of those red flags that should tell you that something may not quite be right. What is the first commandment That Jesus, let's not talk about the Old Testament. We'll talk about that in Galatians. What is the first commandment in the book of Matthew that he gives to us? Repent. But I don't want to repent. Red flag, something's not quite right. Then you start getting into the Sermon on the Mount. What does he tell us to do? Well, that's not in the Sermon on the Mount, but we'll take that one. <laughs> his, uh, his comment was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's a commandment that God has given to us. What is it that we as believers are to use to disciple other believers? What would God, what would Christ have us to do. You know, there's this thing that went around years ago, what would Jesus do? It was actually taken from an old book, most people don't know this, called In His Steps. At the time, it was the most popular book in the world outside the Bible. Part of that was because the guy that wrote it forgot to go get it copyrighted and everybody in the world printed it. But it was about a church that set about answering the question on a daily basis, what would Jesus do? It was written in the late 1800s or something like that. I don't remember when. Huh? In Topeka, Kansas. (laughs) How does that not fall into legalism? And guess what? That is what we're going to talk about in the book of Galatians. Because you see, when we worked our way through the book of Matthew, we had this group that kept showing up called the Pharisees. The Pharisees had their list, and they made lists of their list, and they worked very diligently to keep their list, and Jesus blasted them. And Jesus warned us that the leaven of the Pharisee, that little bit of Pharisaical attitude and action can be present in all of us, and we need to watch out for it. How does teaching people to follow the commands of Christ not fall into legalism? We'll talk about that in the book of Galatians. But, you are ready for this? What is the command that Jesus has given us? It is to teach others to follow the commands of Christ. Kind of weird. Kind of loops in on itself. How do we take new believers and move them to maturity in Christ? When Christ says, be anxious for nothing... But in everything with prayer and supplication, make your request. That's what we're supposed to do. When he says, don't worry about tomorrow, this is the one I was actually thinking of, don't worry about tomorrow because God has it under control. Guess what? We're not supposed to worry. Guess what I do all the time? Worry. Guess what I need to do? Repent and trust God to do what he says he's going to do. But I don't want to. Red flag warning. We baptize people, which is the demonstration, the public presentation that they have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord. And then we teach them to observe the commands of Christ. We teach them to do the things that Christ has told us to do. As we've said before, when we get to, say, the book of Romans, that it says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Don't use your members, the pieces of your body, as instruments of unrighteousness. And it simply means this. That hand right there needs to be told what to do. It can either do things that are unrighteous... Or it can follow the instructions of Christ. What does Christ say to do with that hand? Use it to help others. Use it to do good. Use it to bring glory to God. That's what we're told to do. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He has the authority and he's told us to do something. He's told us to do something, and we go do it. And sometimes when you're doing it, you begin to think that you're the only person in the world doing it. You begin to think that here I am, I am abandoned, and Christ is telling us, no, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whenever you're doing it, I'm there with you. Now, this is a blessing to us, okay? This is a great and wonderful thing. Now, if you're engaged in sinful activity and you're a believer, remember that God, Jesus, is with you always. I mean, it's like when my father was alive, I would probably not watch certain TV shows if my dad was in the room, even as an adult, Why? Because I was worried what he would think. And to honor him. Guess what? Jesus is with you always. So there's the negative side of that, but don't think too much about the negative side. Think about the positive side. The fact that wherever you are, doing what you ought to be doing, what ought you be doing... making disciples, right? Whatever you're doing, Jesus is there with you. Now, I want to go back just one second and talk again about who is this passage given to? Well, we know that in this particular time and space, it was given to 11 disciples. It was probably given to the larger crowd, though, the believers that followed him after his resurrection. But let's just talk about the 11 for right now. These 11 disciples are going to spend their lives sharing the gospel around the world. They are what we today would refer to as full-time Christian workers. You know the old joke? They get paid to be good. I, on the other hand, am good for nothing. It's an old joke. But they're professional pastors, missionaries, etc. So, is this passage only given to those who are called to some Christian profession? And my answer would be no. But wait, I don't have the time to go to all these places and share the gospel. That's true. God didn't call you to do that. Well, then I'm off the hook. No, you're not off the hook. Because as you enter your circle of friends, family, acquaintances, you may have access to people that no missionary or pastor in the world can communicate with. It's just you. And God has put you there to talk to one person, two people. I don't know how many. We have family, we have friends, we have acquaintances that we have access to that the pastor of this church will never meet because God has planned it that way. Yes, there are professional pastors and missionaries who do that, full-time, and more power to them. We are told we are commanded to support them in their activities, and that's good. You and I will probably not go to be full-time missionaries in Africa. There are people in this class who have done that. There are people in this class who have gone for an extended period of time. That's great! But you can also support those who do go. Go. But don't think the supporting them lets you off the hook. Figure out how to disciple one person. Just one. And let God take care of the rest. So, that brings us to the end of the book of Matthew. What have we learned in the book of Matthew? I was sitting in the car in the parking lot the other day waiting for people. And I wrote down a chapter-by-chapter summary of the book of Matthew. And no, I didn't do it on my memory. I, like I'm sure all of you, have your study Bible in the backseat of your car just for moments like this, right? Chapter 1, we talked about the genealogy and birth of Jesus. And that's fascinating because what did we just read? I am with you to the end of the age. What is in chapter 1? The angel appears and says his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. It begins the book with saying God's going to be with you, and it ends the book by saying God's going to be with you. Guess what? Jesus is God, and he's going to be with you. Chapter 2, the wise men show up. And Jesus travels around. Remember, he goes to Egypt because he's running away from Herod, and then he's brought back, and he's traveling around. Chapter 3, John the Baptist shows up on the picture. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, I always have to remember where he is in the family tree, his cousin is the one that was sent to prepare the way. And Jesus shows up and says, you need to baptize me. And John was smart enough to know that John didn't need to be baptizing Jesus because Jesus was a well, he was a good guy. And Jesus said, no, go ahead and do it. It's got to be done. So, chapter 4, we have the temptation where Jesus goes out into the wilderness and fast for 40 days and he really did fast for 40 days and at the end of the 40 days he was tired he was hungry duh and satan shows up and says hey just turn those stones into bread and you know what jesus was the only person on the planet who could have done that and guess what he could have guess what nobody would have ever known But guess what? All Satan was trying to do was to get Jesus to do one thing outside the will of the Father. And Jesus said, nope, not going to do it. So Jesus resists the temptation, and I might add, he resists the temptation with no power other than the same power that you and I are given, which is what? The power of the word of God satan says do this and jesus tells him the scripture satan says do this i mean jesus could have just zapped satan at that point with his power and it had all been over kind of wonder why that didn't happen not my call so jesus begins his public ministry his public ministry begins a whole lot like john's public ministry which is telling the people to repent He begins to call his disciples. He calls the first handful of them. First commandment that Jesus gives, repent. Second commandment, follow me. That moves us into chapter 5, 6, and 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount. We had a long discussion about whether the Sermon on the Mount applies to us today, because there are those who believe it doesn't. It's either for some future time or it was something that the jews had to do my argument has always been well there's the cop-out answer which was let's play it safe and go ahead and do it okay but i believe that if in fact it is the lifestyle of the kingdom maybe we ought to start practicing it right now it begins with the beatitudes blessed are the poor in spirit blessed are the meek blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness blessed are those that mourn And then it moves into a discussion of the law. It tells us that you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. It says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. Because you know the Pharisees had been putting this burden on the people. And Jesus says, nope, I'm not going to abolish the law. I'm going to fulfill the law. Every righteous commandment Of the law is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ and we know jump over to the book of Romans we know that we can receive that righteousness because he has given it to us so he then gives a long discussion about the law you've heard it said don't kill anybody I tell you if you're angry with your brother he takes the law and he moves it to a condition of the heart He talks about anger. He talks about adultery. He talks about a variety of different things. Moving into chapter 6, he talks about don't do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. That's another command. When you fast, don't look like it. Oh, it's such a hard life. I'm following Christ, and I had to fast today. No! When you pray... Go in your closet. When you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Just do it in secret. And your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Do you want the rewards of God or do you want the rewards of men? And on into chapter five, six, seven, where he finishes off. He says, don't judge people. He says, well, he ends up with the discussion of If you hear these words and you put them into practice, you're like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. And when the storms come, and guess what? The storms are going to come. When the storms come, the foundation will stand. But if you're the fool who hears these words, and guess what? Every one of you has heard these words. You're not off the hook. If you hear these words and don't put them into practice, you're like the fool who builds his house on the sand. And when the storms come... Guess what? The storms are gonna come. Every one of us is old enough to know that the storms of life are going to come. And when the storms come, the foundation will be destroyed. And then it says that the people were amazed because he spoke as one who had authority, not like, not like the other teachers they were used to. Where did that authority come from? All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. What is the purpose of the book of Matthew? It is to demonstrate to us that Jesus is the Messiah, the coming king, the king of the kingdom. What is the kingdom? The kingdom is the rule of Christ. We don't have time to go through all the rest of the chapters. But we are going to finish. We have parables. We have parables where Jesus teaches to us through stories. We have miraculous events. We talked about numbers of those. We had teaching sessions, the Sermon on the Mount, and others. We had a discussion about the Second Coming. We had lots, lots, of discussion about Jesus being challenged by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and others as they began to poke at him at the beginning. And finally they said, enough of this, let's figure out how to kill him. And finally he got tired of all their poking, and he just said, woe to you, you brood of vipers. And he'd list reasons why they were not doing what they were supposed to be doing. They were the religious leaders. And guess what? When we get to the book of Galatians, we're going to talk about the same attitude over and over again. But there's another interesting thing we saw in the book of Matthew. One of his early miracles where he heals somebody, a centurion shows up and says, My servant is sick and dying. And Jesus said, well, let me go. I'll take care of it. And the centurion says, no, you don't need to go. All you have to do is speak, because I am used to command. And Jesus says, man, this guy has great faith. Guess what that centurion wasn't? He wasn't a Jew. How can that be? The book of Galatians. Why are all these Gentiles coming into our Jewish religion More about that. Later, a Canaanite woman comes and says, my child is dying. I'll take care of it. A Canaanite woman. Guess what? She wasn't a Jew. God chose Abraham. Great thing. But God has chosen to save the world through Jesus Christ. And the book of Galatians that we will start next week is going to talk about how we as Gentiles can share in the promises that God gave to the Jewish people. Jesus is the Messiah. That is what the book of Matthew teaches us. But he is not just the Messiah for the Jews. Jesus is the seed of Abraham through which All the world will be blessed. And that's what we're going to talk about starting next week. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit coming into our lives to show us what we need to do. Lord, I pray that we would be obedient, that we would not hinder or fight against the movement of the Spirit in our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.